this time. The young children who are going to the training time can meet their teachers in the back. They'll rejoin us as we begin the Lord's Supper a little later. Everyone that's sticking with us, please turn to Matthew 27. Older kids, if you like, remember on one of the stands in the back of the room, there's some red folders with sermon outlines to help you follow along. It is fill in the blank, though, so you've got to do some work with it. Matthew chapter 27, 50, yeah, 27, sorry, beginning in verse 55, hear now the word of the Lord. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, He is risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go. Make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. This is the word of the Lord. Now many of you know that today is traditionally Palm Sunday. Expecting perhaps for us to read and and hear about the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem as the crowds welcomed him and, and waved their palm branches and shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And very typically we hear those sermons and talk about Jesus as our king and welcoming our king. But I want to pause and adjust our expectations a bit. First of all, I think we covered that Palm Sunday sermon months and months and months and months ago when we were earlier in Matthew on that topic. And we're finishing up Matthew's Gospel as we head up into Easter to read about the resurrection. And my thoughts as I looked at this passage turned to a story of a a different king, one I saw a movie about, uh, King T'Challa of the movie Black Panther. And if you haven't seen that, it's one of the highest grossing movies of of all time. It came out a few years ago, and and it tells the story of King T'Challa of the fictional nation of Wakanda, and he is facing a challenger to his throne, and the way that their kingdom resolves those challenges is by hand-to-hand combat. The king and the challenger will face each other in front of a crowd of witnesses from across the kingdom will watch them in hand-to-hand combat until one ultimately totally defeats the other, and the winner will be king. And in this story, T'Challa is overmatched, and he is beaten thoroughly. And as he's being defeated, his opponent, named Killmonger, is ready to finish the battle, and he begins to mock T'Challa in front of all the witnesses, and he starts to shout, Is this your king? Really? Is he the one that's supposed to defend you? Is he the one that's going to lead you into battle? Is he the one that's supposed to protect you? Is this your king? And you see T'Challa beaten and bloodied and defeated, gasping for breath. 
as he is shamed. And not only is T'Challa shamed, but all those who trusted in him and looked to him were shamed in his defeat. I want you to imagine the crowds who on Palm Sunday had witnessed and celebrated the arrival of their king and who had invested their hopes in this Savior, now seeing their king buried as he is taken down from the cross and put in a tomb. It is as if Satan, the enemy of God's people, is mocking not only Jesus, but those who trusted in him, saying, Is this your king? Look what I've done with your king. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. The Westminster Larger Catechism describes Jesus' burial as being a part of his humiliation. And question 50 reads like this on the slides. You'll see, wherein, wherein consisted Christ's humiliation after his death? And the answer is Christ's humiliation after his death consisted in his being buried and continuing in the state of the dead and under the power of death until the third day. The burial of Jesus was, was humbling. He humbled himself. He took on that humiliation by choice. But it was nevertheless humbling that he should be buried. Is this really the king that you hoped in? What good is a king in a tomb? Our stories about Easter, very often as we tell them, tend to jump from the cross very quickly to the resurrection. Because we don't, I think, like to dwell on what happens in between. That Jesus was buried in a tomb and under the power of death for a time. But what happens during that time is significant. The fact that Jesus was buried is recorded in every single one of the Gospels. It's recited in the Apostles' Creed and even this morning in the Nicene Creed. We recited that He was buried. That's important. Why does it matter what happened to Jesus' body after He dies? Well, it matters very much because the power of our Gospel requires that we believe in a Savior that truly died for His people. So let us not be so quick to praise His triumphal moment that we neglect to accept His darkest hour. His untriumphal exit through burial. And so to help us grow in our faith in the gospel, Matthew teaches us a few things through the burial of Jesus. The first thing he teaches us is that it is a real event. It is a real event. I was talking with my son. I have his permission to share this. My son is uh, on a highly motivated quest to read through the Bible. Uh, he will get rewarded for that. And so that's how we do things in my house. And, and as he's reading through the Bible, he's already done the New Testament. He's in the Old Testament. And I asked him about a week or so ago, how far is he? Like, where are you at in the Old Testament? He said, I'm in Kings. I said, oh, how's that going? He said, there's a lot of names. There's a lot of names. And I don't even know how to read them, Dad. I was like, that's okay. You're not alone in feeling that way. If you ask anybody in our church to do that, they would probably have the same sort of feeling. I get it. There's a lot of names in the Bible, names that, that are of people long dead, people we don't know, places that we'll never visit, places that might not even exist anymore. And, and that can be somewhat less interesting of a read when we try to push on through, right? What am I supposed to get out of these lists of names? I mean, who sits through the credits of a movie and watches every name as it scrolls up? And yet here in the middle of recording the death and burial of Jesus, arguably the most significant event in Scripture, 
Matthew takes a break and starts listing names in verses 55 and 56. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Okay, first of all, it's, it's worth noting just in passing that though we often picture Jesus wandering around and ministering with his 12 all-male disciples, uh, it typically wasn't just the 13 of them. There was typically a much larger gathering, including we see several times in the Gospels a group of women that were following, learning, and also ministering and financially supporting. In, many case, in any case, Matthew says that there were many such women even at the cross, uh, not just the ones that he goes on to name. But he does name three of them, two Marys and then the mother of, of the sons of Zebedee, James and John. And then again in verse 61, after the burial of Jesus, he, he repeats it. They put Jesus in the tomb and he says, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. Why, why does Matthew name names? Why does it matter who was there? Well, it's because Matthew wants you to know that there were witnesses. Not just any witnesses. If you're one of Matthew's original readers, these were witnesses you could go up to and ask who had seen the death, the burial, the body placed in the tomb. If, if I were to tell you that, uh, that this morning as we were getting ready, I saw a moose running down Colorado Avenue, you would not be very inclined to believe me. But if I was so sure I saw it and I wanted to convince you and I said, no, 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 seriously, Richard Buck and, and Randy and, and, and uh, Shirley Cope, they were out there too, they all saw it. You can go ask them. I would mention names to show you the credibility of my witness. People you could go up to and ask, people you could trust. And that's what happens. Matthew's saying, look, the body was put in a tomb. The body really died it was really buried. We didn't have a mix-up. We didn't go to the wrong tomb and find an empty tomb and say, oh, the most logical explanation is that he was resurrected. No, they saw it. They knew. Go ask them. The point is, in Matthew as well as the rest of Scripture, that these things really happened. They were a real event. Our faith is not based on myths, legends, or inspiring fictions. Paul, when arguing for the truth of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to, to Cephas, one of the, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. It's that last line that's significant. He says, look, there were 500 people that saw Jesus alive after his crucifixion. And then Paul specifies that most of them are still alive, even though some have already died. He says, most of them are still alive. Why would he say that? Because he's encouraging the Corinthians, if you don't believe it, go ask. There's no shortage of witnesses you can talk to. Because Paul isn't saying, just have faith and believe. Paul isn't saying your, your faith, your, your hope needs to be built on these stories that I'm telling you, whether they're true or not. No, he says, look, it has to be true, and if it's not true, it's a waste of your time, so go investigate. Go talk to the witnesses. Similarly, when he was on trial before Herod Agrippa and Festus, the Roman uh, leader of that area, 
Paul spoke of the resurrection, and look at how he defends it in Acts 26. As Paul was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind! Your great learning is driving you out of your mind! But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things have escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. Paul was able to boldly say, look, everything I'm telling you, this isn't some secret thing that happened privately. This was not done in a corner. These are real events with real witnesses who really testify that it's real. It was important to the Holy Spirit that scriptures record not fantasy, but verified reality. Jesus instructs his disciples to be witnesses of what he has done, not just instructors of what he has taught. Let me say that again. I want you to catch that, because if there's anything that, that, that good, solid, reformed people struggle with, it's that we love to teach, and the answer to everything is to read another book or teach another class. But Jesus called his followers, first and foremost, to be witnesses of what he has done, not just instructors of what he has taught. Your faith rests on deeds, not on ideas. Would you trust a, uh, a surgeon who, before you went in for surgery, said, now I've never actually done this before, but I've really read up on it, and I have some really good ideas that I want to try. Because I think they're going to work. I'm pretty sure they're going to work. Okay, are you signing the consent form for that? I assure you that you are not. Because nobody wants to put their hope and risk their life on ideas. Our faith rests on the deeds of the Lord. The psalmists even say as much in Psalm 105. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds. Not doctrine. Deeds among the peoples. Sing to Him. Sing praises to Him. Tell of all His wondrous works. Am I saying doctrine is bad? No. Am I saying it's bad to teach? No. Absolutely, we should have good, solid doctrine and know what we believe. But our doctrine and what we teach comes from what Scripture records that the Lord has done. God did not just reveal from heaven some ideas. He acts in history miraculously, amazingly, compassionately, powerfully, and faithfully. And so it is important when it comes to the burial of Jesus and many other things, it is important that we understand that it is a real event. The next thing Matthew shows us is that it is a real death. It's a real death. It's worth noting that the Gospels don't just record the death and rising, they all record the burial of Jesus because they want to be clear that it's a real death. Look at verse 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate, asked him for the body of Jesus, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock, and he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Jesus was buried because he died a real death. And that isn't just a little detail. It matters greatly. In Hebrews Chapter 2, we're told that by the grace of God, Jesus tasted death for everyone. His death wasn't a symbol. It wasn't a noble act to inspire us or to set an example. 
He had to die because death is what sin deserves. And if he is to take away and pay the penalty of our sin, he has to really actually die. If Jesus doesn't die, then his attempt to pay for our sins with anything less than death is like you trying to pay your power bill with monopoly money. What's going to happen? The lights are going to go out, right? It's not going to work because it's not a real payment. The reality of Jesus' death helps to put to rest false theories about how to explain the cross and the empty tomb. For centuries, skeptics have claimed things like, Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He swooned. He fainted. He passed out from loss of blood and exhaustion. And then they put him in this nice, cool, comfortable tomb and put a blanket up over him, tucked it up under his chin. And in that cool, refreshing air, he recovered and got up and walked out and amazed everybody. Well, no, it wasn't like that. Verse 59 describes how they wrapped Jesus' body in a clean linen shroud. This wasn't a loose robe that covered him up. This wasn't like the blanket I put over my kids at night that is quickly kicked by their feet off the bed by morning. No, this was the equivalent of mummification. This was tightly wrapped around your face and your whole body. And those of you that are claustrophobic are cringing right now and maybe wanting to leave the room. Because uh, that's what was going on. It was tightly, tightly wrapped. You, and, and in fact, we see elsewhere that they soak those cloths in 75 pounds worth of spices and ointments and oils to help preserve the body. So somebody who just swooned and then has a soaking wet cloth wrapped around their whole body, tightly binding their arms and their face, are they waking up and walking out of there? They are not. Jesus didn't just faint. He died. And Matthew gives us this detail to show us and to put to rest the idea that Jesus didn't die. He wants to show us that it was a real death. He was in the tomb for days, not minutes. So let me ask why that matters. Have you ever gotten a call from a bill collector? You know, some outstanding debt. I, I got one of those years and years ago for uh, the place I lived in college. You know, with six guys total, five other guys and me, and we all shared one phone line back in the days before everybody had a phone. Um, anybody remember what that was like? You know, the, and the long-distance bill comes in, and we've all got to sit around the table and figure out, okay, who called Arizona? Nobody? Come on, guys. You know, I, because my name was on the phone bill, 10 years after we moved out, I got a call from the phone company, bill collector, wanting me to pay $33 for our last phone bill. And they called and they called and they called and they called. And finally, I reached out to these guys I used to live with, scattered around the country now, and uh, we, we sorted it out and I paid $33. And you know what happened after I paid $33? The phone calls stopped. They stopped bugging me because I paid my debt. When you pay your debt, you're free, right? In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, we're told that the wages of sin is death. Sin works for us, and then we owe it wages. And what are the wages that we must pay for engaging in sin? It is death. We pay with our lives. And until we pay with our lives, we are in debt. And the debt collector will call and call and call. Jesus had to really die to pay that debt. What, what, what famous words does Jesus say as he died? 
as he dies. He says, it is finished. He's using a Greek word, tetelestai, which means paid in full, complete. In, in ancient Greek culture, you would write tetelestai over a bill that had been paid. When I finally paid off my student loans, being the nerd that I am, do you know what I wrote over the top of my last payment? <laughs> tetelestai! It's finished! It's paid in full! You can't come after me again! In Romans chapter 6, verse 3, Paul writes, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? So to set this up, Paul says that in baptism, you are joined, you are united to Jesus. It's like being united to an airplane. Okay, If you are united to an airplane that's going to Cleveland, if that airplane goes to Cleveland, are you going to somehow end up in Tucson? You're not. You go where the plane goes. Scripture speaks of us being united to Christ, of being in Christ. When you are in Christ, you go where He goes. And Paul says, you, we are united to Him, baptized into His death. When He goes into death, we die. And when He rises, we rise. Romans chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So that bill collector would stop calling. For one who has died has been set free from sin. There it is. Once you die, you've paid your debt to sin. And remember, when the Bible speaks of death, it's not just speaking of the body. It's speaking of that eternal separation from God and all His goodness. It's not ceasing to exist. It's separation, exile. But those who are united to Christ don't just die. We come back from death with Jesus. And so to finish out that Romans 6 passage, looking at verses 8-11, through 11, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we'll also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died to sin, He died once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus under law. Not under law, but under grace. Sorry, I think that's a typo there. You are dead to sin. Go back to my bill collector. When that debt is paid, I don't have to take their calls anymore, do I? The debt is paid. And what Paul is saying is, once you are in Christ and have died, because Christ died, you don't have to pick up the phone anymore when sin calls demanding you pay your debt. We should block the number. Our debt is paid, and yet we answer. How do we still try to pay that debt? We try to do whatever we can to prove that we're okay, that we shouldn't have to die, to please God and to please others. We keep paying the debt and paying the debt. But it was a real death, brothers and sisters. It was a real death. If it wasn't, it couldn't have paid your death, your debt. I've got to move on. It was a real event, it was a real death, and lastly, it's a really big deal. That's a theological term. It's a really big deal that Jesus was buried. There's one thing people know about the Christian faith. It's probably that we're really, really, really focused on Jesus on the cross. And some might even accuse us of being a little bit obsessed with it. But as Matthew goes on to show, we're not the only ones who are interested in Jesus dying. His enemies, too, were very concerned with the burial of Jesus although their concern was that he stay buried. 
Because they recognized, as we do, that what happens to the body of Jesus is a really big deal. Verse 62, the next day, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how this imposter said while he was still alive that after three days I will rise. Now pause there. It's, it's just interesting to note that though the disciples were surprised by Jesus' resurrection, even his enemies knew that he had predicted it. They didn't expect it to actually happen, but they knew that he had talked about it. Moving on to the next verse. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away from the people and tell the people he's risen from the dead. So their expectation is that the disciples would steal the body, which seems plausible. Plausible that they might steal the body and pretend there was a, rec- a resurrection until you recognize that the witnesses who claimed, the 500 witnesses who claimed that Jesus had risen from the dead and they'd seen him rise from the dead would end up going to jail would end up losing everything they had, would end up being tortured, would end up ultimately being killed for claiming to have seen a resurrected Jesus. You don't just give up your career, your well-being, your family, and indeed your life for a lie that you made up. Nobody's that committed to it. Especially not all of them. No. It's not worth it. And so in Acts chapter 5, we have a case where the Pharisees persecuting the early disciples get this word of advice from one of their own numbers, one of their teachers, Gamaliel. It says, in the present case, I tell you, he's warning the other Pharisees, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. And you might even be found opposing God. Wise words from someone opposed to the rise of the church. But his point is true. If this is human in origin, it's going to end. But if this is of God, you can't stop it. So it really matters if this is of God or not. And then verse 64 of Matthew 27, they go on to conclude, the last fraud will be worse than the first. They believed Jesus was a fraud, deceiving people. But he would be more dangerous if people believed he had risen from the dead. And they're right. Because what is a martyr compared to someone who rises from the dead? What is a good teacher compared to someone who has walked out of his grave alive and well? If Jesus was a deceiver, if he was not the God he claimed to be, then it's doubly bad if we believe that he rose from the dead. But it goes the other way too. If if we try to build our faith on anything less than a risen Savior, If in your heart Jesus is cool, he's good, but he he didn't do all that crazy rising from the dead stuff, but he's a good teacher and we need to listen to what he says. If that's your faith, then it is foolish. And I say so not on my own authority. I say that according to Scripture. Because if Jesus didn't really die, or if he was an angel that merely appeared human and then left at the cross, or whatever other theory people bring, then there is no actual payment for your sins except what you yourself bring on the day of judgment. Paul warns us of how big a deal the resurrection is and how our faith stands and falls in the truth of it in 1 Corinthians 15. You've heard me quote this many times, and I'll quote it many times again, because I want you to understand. If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Then all those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. It is a really big deal. 
So it's important that there's no possibility of a resurrection scam. That's why Pilate, in verse 65 and 66, gives them permission. He says, go, make your guard of soldiers, make it as secure as you can. And so they went and they made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Yeah, it's important. It's a really big deal that they keep him in the grave. A fainting Jesus that woke up can't save you. A dead Jesus whose body disappears can't save you. Only a Jesus who is really dead buried, and miraculously risen for our salvation can save you. What happens to the body of Jesus is a really big deal. His enemies get that. I wonder if we do. We talked about this a year or two ago in Sunday school. This question of what is our message when we share the gospel with somebody? If you asked a random non-Christian on the street and said, what does it mean to be a Christian? What is at the heart of the Christian faith? How would they respond based on what they've seen in the body of Christ? Would they answer that to be a Christian you have to vote a certain way? You have to follow a certain moral code? You have to condemn and oppose certain groups or types of people? You have to have a particular stance on evolution or on gender or some other hot topic of the day? Is that what they understand to be the heart of your faith? I pray that it would never be so. May our witness to Jesus be centered on the risen Savior. His enemies knew that this was at the heart of it all, that if they could stop any claim of Him rising, that they would end it then and there. If they could keep Jesus in His grave, the church would have no teeth. A resurrected Jesus is a Savior that can't be controlled or contained, not by His enemies and not by death itself. And so as a Christian, it's not enough for you or me to say, Jesus died for my sins. He did, and I want you to believe that. But that's not all. It's incomplete. Jesus died for your sins, but He rose. And that's where the power of the Gospel lies. A martyr will give up their life. A Savior defeats death. What is at the heart of the Christian faith? It is Jesus defeating death by dying and rising. Everything we believe and do flows out of that. How we live, what we believe, our morals, our goals, everything begins with that. Because if that is false, we're wasting our time here. I mean, you've come here for a good meal, and that'll be great. But beyond that, it's a waste of time if Jesus has not risen. But thank God He has. And we celebrate that. And as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper here, let's prepare our hearts by focusing on that hope. Pray with me. Our gracious God and Savior, You've known our need, that we had a debt we could not hope to pay, and you provided for that. Jesus, as you took on human flesh and paid our price, all of our hope is built on that. We praise you that it really happened and that it was a real death. Teach us to understand the fullness, the full meaning of that and the hope that it gives us. We pray this in our Savior's name. Amen. As our elders come forward to serve us the Lord's Supper, if I have not already made it clear this morning, it is my job to make clear to you that Jesus had to die for your sins. And that is what we celebrate, one of the things we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. Because we celebrate and believe that here we have represented to us the body and blood of Jesus Christ. An angel could not have saved you. 
A spirit could not have saved you. It had to be one who has flesh and blood as you have, who pays your price. And indeed he did. But he did that for those who are united to him. Only those who by faith believe in him are united to him and therefore pass with him through death and again to new life. And and those who are united to Jesus, those who have confessed their faith in him and joined his church and been baptized into Jesus Christ, have the assurance of these promises. And so this is not strictly for members of this church. This is not for people who agree with us on everything. This is for all who trust in Jesus Christ, who have said, I have united myself to Jesus Christ. Where he goes, I go. And I follow him, and I am with him in death, and therefore I believe I am with him in new life and in eternal glory. That's who it's for. If you've taken that lightly, if you've confessed that with your words, but are rejecting it with the life you live, if you are consciously choosing to disobey Christ as a pattern and habit of your lifestyle, then this bread and this cup is a warning that the penalty of sin is death. And if you're not one with Christ, if you're not united to Him, then you're on your own for paying that price. This is also a reminder of the unity that we have of the body of Christ. And we are called to preserve that unity. And just as we who are many become one in Him, we are not to lightly forsake the body of Christ. The body of Christ. And so before you take of His body here represented, consider how you treat the body as a whole. Have you sinned against another? Are you withholding grace from another? Are you bitter against another? Is someone hurt by you and you haven't made it right? Let's pray in a moment and do whatever you have to commit yourself to making it right, to mending the body of Christ today. But to all who are weary, to all who are weak, to all who are doubting, confused, uncertain, scared, frightened, if you have faith in Christ, come to the table and receive the body and blood of Christ, which reminds you that it's not your goodness, it's not you getting your act together, it's not you having correct doctrine, it's not you being able to explain and argue the resurrection against those who oppose you. None of that saves you. Jesus alone. And so we take with joy. Let us pray and prepare our hearts.